0: For the longest time, I wanted to be famous, an actor, sure, but I would have been okay with Nobel Prize winning poet or a well-known orchestra conductor, you know, with the crazy hair, globally recognized. This is the curse of a lot of kids who are told that they were gifted, institutionally special. From age 9 to 13, I was pulled out of my regular classroom one day a week and bused to a place for nerds who tested well we weren't doing high level math or composing symphonies i think one semester i created a board game another time i teamed up with some other kids to build a robot which barely functioned it doesn't matter the point is this instilled in me a sense of destiny that i had a voice an important voice and that voice would contribute something meaningful to this world then life happened a series of disappointments in my teens 20s 30s and i understood this Destiny wasn't in the cards for me. But then one day, kind of on a whim, I set up a home studio and tried to become a voice actor, audiobooks specifically. And it worked. I found my voice. Not globally recognized by any means, but personally meaningful. I was getting work. I was getting noticed for that work. But then, another disappointment. I went to record one morning, and after a few minutes, I could barely speak the voice I had was gone. And even after weeks, months, years, it refused to come back. I was silenced. What happened? We'll get into it later this episode. I'm David Sadsen, a loser, voicing a podcast about losers. History's forgotten children, the ones who ran for president of the United States and lost. Episode 5 is all about the first woman to run for president. She did this in 1872, almost 50 years before most women could legally vote in America. You might have heard of her, but it's more likely you haven't. You see, she was raised with a sense of destiny. And she, too, found her voice, a voice that rang out so far and wide, for a while, virtually everyone in America heard its call. Some people liked what they heard. Many people didn't. And as that voice became more outspoken, more notorious, as that voice eventually proclaimed a candidacy for president, the people who didn't like that voice used every tool at their disposal to quell it, which, for the most part, they did. This is the story of a woman ahead of her time. This is the story of Destiny Silenced. This is the story of Victoria Woodhull. Victoria Woodhull was a walking contradiction.
1: I think if there was one word to describe Victoria, it would be contradiction.
0: This is Nicole Evelina.
1: Author of Madam Presidentes, the story of Victoria Woodhull, America's first female presidential candidate.
0: Her book, Madam Presidentes, is a work of historical fiction heavily informed by actual events. The book portrays a speech Woodhull gave at a New York City venue, the Cooper Institute on January 9th, 1873, two months after the election in which she ran for president. By this point, almost everyone in America had heard the name Victoria Woodhull. She had a huge following. So near the time of the speech, eight o'clock, a crowd of about 3,000 people had gathered. And understand, the crowd was there even though the event had been canceled. That is contradiction number one. Contradiction number two, Victoria Woodhull arrived at the Cooper Institute in disguise. The most notorious woman in America did not want to be noticed because...
1: Right before she was supposed to leave for the Cooper Institute, she found out that if she left, she would be arrested on site. So she and a friend of hers came up with a plan to where she would go to the event dressed as an old woman.
0: The type of old woman... That would be contradiction number three.
1: She was dressed, I believe the description was, uh, as an elderly Quaker woman with a, um, a coal scuttle-type bonnet and some kind of a shawl.
0: This image of an unassuming, elderly, pious Quaker, this was perhaps the biggest contradiction of all. To her enemies, Victoria Woodhull was anything but pious and unassuming. Even her biggest admirers would have laughed at the absurdity, had they noticed. But turns out that costume did its job.
1: She was able to get in without any question, walked past several police officers. Nobody questioned anything. The person who was doing the introduction to her speech was getting ready to say, You know, Victoria couldn't be with us tonight, but I'm going to read her speech on her behalf. And Victoria, by that time, had made her way to the front of the crowd, very dramatically ripped off her costume, and said, That won't be necessary. I'm here.
0: The audience cheered. Reportedly, the people in the front row put their feet up against the railing to prevent the cops from moving in. But the cops just stood there. They were stunned, listening along with the rest of the crowd while Victoria Woodhull spoke for 90 minutes.
1: Then... In true Victoria fashion, she walked to the edge of the stage, extended her arms so that her wrists could be handcuffed, and was officially arrested.
0: Did you always want to write about Victoria Woodhull?
1: Oh, I didn't even know she existed. I went to an all-girls high school and we didn't learn about her. I, I found a picture of her on Pinterest and the caption fascinated me because it talked about how she was called Mrs. Satan and how she was reviled by a lot of people during the time and was very controversial. And I was like, I have to learn about this woman.
0: This woman? They really did call her Mrs. Satan. Mrs. Satan. I'm sure by now you have a ton of questions. How was Victoria Woodhull a criminal? Why was she so famous? What did she actually talk about during those 90 minutes while the cops just watched and waited? And finally, who was Victoria Woodhull? And why the hell didn't we learn about her in school? I promise, by the end of this episode, you'll have the answers to every one of those questions. But I make you another promise. You're going to walk away with more questions. Such was the nature of Victoria Woodhull the Queen of Walking Contradictions. Victoria Woodhull was born Victoria Claflin in the little town of Homer, Ohio, on September 23, 1838. Homer had one intersection. It also had one of those families. You know the ones. That notorious family small towns love to gossip about. Homer's notorious family was the Claflins. Victoria's family. Her father was Reuben Buckman Claflin. Everyone called him Buck. And Buck was a genuine con man.
1: We know for sure that he was a literal snake oil salesman. He sold all kinds of miraculous cures for cancer.
2: Her father was, quite frankly, really a failure at business.
0: That second voice you just heard was Dr. Terry Finneman.
2: I'm an associate professor of journalism at the University of Kansas.
0: And the author of Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. She'll be helping us tell the story along with author Nicole Levellina. So we've got Victoria's father, Buck, the con man.
1: Then you have her mother,
0: Anna. She was, shall we say, a woman of conviction.
1: They said that she was actually very intelligent, that supposedly she could recite the Bible backwards, but she glommed on to just this mystical, spiritual side of things, but not in a good way.
0: According to biographer Mary Gabriel, Anna would routinely spend her evenings in a nearby orchard, praying and crying, loudly. The town basically thought she was crazy. But Anna had other hobbies.
1: Including blackmailing her neighbors um, to, you know, get things to her advantage. So in that way, she and Buck were a match definitely not made in heaven. Um... But but yet they were, you know, they were a pair.
0: Anna Claflin had big dreams for her daughter. She says that's why she named her Victoria.
2: Her mother actually named her after Queen Victoria. Uh, her mother had a vision that her daughter would one day uh, be at the height of greatness and wanted to give her daughter a strong, powerful name.
0: So, you know, no pressure. Anna Claflin would give birth to 10 children. Not all would survive to adulthood. Some would die in infancy. Victoria was probably the sixth of the overall ten, and it seemed she was the only child gifted with this particular sense of destiny wrapped up in a name. This might not come as a surprise, but Victoria's upbringing was challenging. Her father, Buck, was abusive. Also, addiction ran pretty strong in her family. Many of Victoria's siblings would grow to have problems with drugs and alcohol. And Victoria was a Claflin in Homer, Ohio. So she got a fair taste of that town's contempt. It could be the one place she felt safe was the world her mother taught her about, the world of the spirits.
1: When you have that as a young girl, you're going to have a different coping mechanism with the world. Um, And some people say that her spiritualism was her coping mechanism.
0: So here's the thing. We can't tell the story of Victoria Woodhull without talking about spiritualism, particularly American spiritualism in the 1800s. Some kind of spiritualist counseling has always been popular in America. I remember these old infomercials from the 90s for the Psychic Friends Network, this pay telephone service where for only $3.99 a minute, you could consult a psychic about your future, maybe even reach out to a dead family member. Spiritualism entered the Claflin household through Anna, Victoria's mother. Anna attended camps where she learned how to talk to the spirits and heal people with magnets. So in addition to naming her child after Queen Victoria and gifting her with a blessing or burden of living up to that particular namesake, Anna also gifted her daughter with an affinity for spiritualism. And Victoria seemed to take to it.
1: It seems to me from her own writings that she truly believed that she had some sort of mystical power. Now, you know, of course, it's up to each one of us to decide, you know, whether or not that could even possibly be true. But all of this comes together to make her into the woman who later has the audacity to run for president when women don't even have the ability to vote.
0: By the time Victoria was around 11, the Claflins had left Homer, Ohio. There's a whole story involving Buck and possible arson. Basically, the town had had enough of Victoria's father and his schemes for getting rich. So the family resettled in the nearby town of Mount Gilead, Ohio. Now Buck had to figure out a new way to get rich. He had a choice to make. Out west, there was gold. The California gold rush was in full swing. But out east, there was another national sensation, the Fox sisters. The Fox sisters were a pair of young psychic siblings from rural New York. They were discovered by P.T. Barnum, the famous showman, and they became a phenomenon, inspiring a wave of mediums across the country. Likely, they also inspired Buck. You see, Buck's daughter, Victoria, was not shy about her talents. She claimed the spirits could work through her to heal the sick. And she believed she could communicate with her dead sisters, the ones who had passed away in infancy. And Buck had another daughter who claimed psychic abilities. Tennessee Claflin, seven years younger than Victoria. Two psychic sisters living under his own roof. This was an opportunity Buck couldn't pass up. By the time Victoria was 14, we're now in the year 1853. She and Tennessee were giving seances and healing ailments for up to 13 hours a day in a Mount Gilead boarding house. Apparently, Buck wasn't a stay-in-school-kids kind of dad. He kept his daughters so busy being a local version of the Fox sisters that they were now the family's primary breadwinners. The only hitch in the plan? Sometimes, Victoria got sick, and the family income would take a hit. This happened often enough that eventually Buck found someone to treat her, but in doing so, he accidentally found her liberator. In 1853, Buck found Victoria's future husband, Dr. Canning Woodhull.
1: He was young, he was attractive, and Victoria realized for the first time that she had somebody who was a male figure who was being kind to her, treating her with a, a level of respect at least. She ended up falling in love with him during the course of his treatment, which there was a lot of, you know, get out and get fresh air, you know, I'll walk with you in the garden. So in a lot of ways, her treatment was part of their courtship.
0: Dr. Woodhull had recently arrived in Mount Gilead from Rochester, New York. He was well-connected, the son of a judge, the nephew of the mayor of New York City. He was 28 and Victoria was 14.
1: But she didn't care, partly because society didn't care at the time as much as they do now. But more that she, I think she saw a way out of the endless hours of working under her father and, you know, being abused. And so when Canning asked her to marry him, she very quickly said yes.
0: And very quickly they were married. In November 1853, a couple months after Victoria turned 15. And just like that she was free because dr woodhall was all the things her father wasn't he was kind he was a good listener just three days after the wedding he
1: was found in a brothel
0: oh right
1: she actually found him which i'm sure must have been a lot of fun canning woodhall ended up being completely different than the way he treated her as soon as they were married he drank all of the money that they brought in he was addicted to laudanum as well.
0: Laudanum is an opiate, popular at the time.
1: There are stories that he physically abused her as well, even while she was pregnant. She was basically marrying her father.
0: Oh, by the way, here's some more shocking news. Are you sitting down? Dr. Woodhall was not the son of a judge, nor was he the nephew of the mayor of New York City. He was like a distant cousin. And he wasn't really a doctor. It's confusing.
1: So in those days, pretty much anybody could call themselves a doctor. There really wasn't a lot of
2: formal training.
0: Suffice it to say, he didn't have much of a medical practice or
2: income. So she ends up being married by the time she's 15 years old to this man who is way older than her um, and is really not a doctor and instead is a womanizer and an alcoholic.
0: Making matters worse, for most women in the 1800s, once you got married, you were stuck. Divorce was extraordinarily uncommon, because of the social stigma, yeah, but also because, as you may know, back then legal rights and property rights for women were virtually non-existent. Not only did husbands legally own their wives, in most states it was well within the law for a husband to beat his wife, as long as he did it with a, quote, reasonable instrument. For Victoria, this was a rude awakening. Over the next few years, the woodholes moved around a lot, spending time in Chicago, San Francisco. The moves tended to be about money, chasing an opportunity or running from debtors. It would often be up to the teenaged Victoria to figure out ways to make money, which was tricky.
2: It's not like women could just go out and get a job, like a regular job. During this time, women really didn't work, right? They were only supposed to be wives and mothers.
0: Starved for options and missing her sister, Tennessee, Victoria insisted on returning to the Claflin clan By age 21, in the year 1859, she had moved back home and rejoined the family business as a spiritual healer and medium. While certainly unusual, this work was one of the few socially acceptable ways for a woman at the time to make money. Enough people saw it as either frivolous or religious adjacent. The thinking was, if anyone was going to do it, it would be women, while men like P.T. Barnum could profit as their promoters. But more crucially, Spiritualism gave Victoria something few women had at the time, something which would arm her in battles to come. It gave her a voice.
1: It gave women the power to speak in public, because at the time, a woman who chose to give her own opinion in public was uh, said to bring shame upon her whole family. But if a woman was a spiritualist, she could speak because it wasn't her doing the speaking, it was the spirit speaking through her.
0: Soon, the Claflin's were traveling caravan-style, not just through the Midwest, but some border states and southern states, too. They were selling hope in the form of miracle cures, talking with the dead. The family had perfected the art of making money off of the chaos of the Civil War, and they made a lot of money. But for Victoria, amid the exploitation, there was revelation. When people met privately with a spiritualist, they said things normally left unsaid. Victoria would later give voice to the steady march of women she counseled, who confided about their quiet suffering, trapped in loveless, often abusive marriages. The term domestic violence, in the modern sense, wasn't even around until the 1970s, so safe to say there were no surveys measuring how common it was in the 1860s. But Victoria counseled enough of these women to suspect it was pervasive. As a result of these conversations, and Victoria's own terrible and abusive marriage to Dr. Canning. The drive and, frankly, anger that began to burn in Victoria would later fuel her rise to prominence, her involvement in the women's rights movement, and her run for president. But before all that could happen, this drive took on the form of raw, reckless lust, a lust for blood, Colonel blood.
1: Victoria's meeting of Colonel James Blood couldn't have been more different than canning. Uh, At the time, Victoria was living in St. Louis, and she was running a healing clinic, and Colonel Blood was seeking healing for his wife.
0: 29-year-old James Harvey Blood was also a spiritualist. He had several bullet wounds in his body, souvenirs from the war. He also had penetrating black eyes and a wife and children but those eyes
1: they kind of had a love or lust if you will at first sight experience and victoria's fanciful um phrasing of it is that it was a spiritualist thing because he was a spiritualist and so was she that they were betrothed by the powers of the air so it was almost like a, a a spiritual marriage I mean, it really sounds like an excuse for the two of them to go, hey, we really like each other. Let's do the things before marriage that are supposed to come after marriage. Very scandalous at the time.
0: Victoria, now 26, decided right then and there to change her fate. Societal convention be damned. There was no plan, nothing rational about the act. She and Blood ran away together. Yes, leaving their families behind. By now, Victoria had two children with Canning. And why not? America was reeling from the recent Civil War, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The world had broken, so the two lovers got a wagon and rode the chaos in a fornication, fortune-telling frenzy throughout the Midwest. Eventually they returned and got married, although the records are spotty in that respect. This marriage to Colonel Blood would have a huge impact on events to come. Victoria's prior marriage to Canningwood Hall would also have a lasting impact for very different reasons. Victoria would not change her name from Woodhall to Blood. According to her earliest biography, a work she personally oversaw, the Woodhull name was at this point a quote-unquote business property. So she kept it. Okay, I'm going to need you to brace yourself. Double-check your seatbelt if you're in a car, because now our story is getting wilder. In the year 1868, two years after marrying Colonel Blood, Woodhull moved to New York City. She says her spirit guide told her to go there. Maybe the spirits had an intuition that in New York, a new character would enter our tale. A character who just so happens to be the richest man in America. Buckle up. Victoria Woodhull is about to meet Cornelius Vanderbilt.
1: Victoria and Tenny meeting Cornelius Vanderbilt is another one of those things you couldn't make up. They couldn't be from a different class or a different part of the world If they
0: tried, Vanderbilt was stupid rich, made his fortune in the railroads. He would eventually be surpassed by John D. Rockefeller for the title of richest man in American history, adjusting for inflation. But by all accounts now, in 1868, Vanderbilt held that distinction. How did Woodhull and Vanderbilt meet? It's unclear. The accounts are vague and contradictory. But two things were clear Vanderbilt often consulted with spiritualists. This would have likely been their way in. And second, he had a huge sexual appetite. So when he met Victoria and her sister, Tennessee, who called herself Tenny...
1: Cornelius fell in love with Tenny almost immediately. <laughs>
2: now, keep in mind, he was quite elderly at this time. Uh, she was in her early 20s, and his family was very upset about this. <laughs> very upset about this.
0: Vanderbilt was a spry 73. And 22 year old Tenny was his kind of woman.
1: She cursed, she drank, she smoked cigars, she played cards. She was exactly the opposite of your typical Victorian woman, exactly the opposite of his wives. And, you know, if she thought it was to her advantage or if she was in love with him as well, she would have had no hesitations of having a relationship with him.
0: While Tenny fulfilled Vanderbilt's needs in this respect, Victoria made herself useful in another way. She used her powers to give him investment advice. Really, really good investment advice. So, if you're having a hard time believing the whole psychic thing, you might be wondering, how could a woman with no experience in the stock market, as far as we know, how could she have pulled this off? How did Victoria Woodhull successfully advise the Wall Street titan Cornelius Vanderbilt? Biographer Barbara Goldsmith presents a theory. You see, Vanderbilt had a Wall Street rival, Jim Fisk. Jim Fisk had a mistress, Josie Mansfield. Fisk told Mansfield his secret business plans, you know, pillow talk. Mansfield sold Fisk's business secrets to her friend, Victoria Woodhull. Woodhull would then enter a trance and present Fisk's plans to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt would profit, then he would share those profits with Woodhull and her sister. After one lucrative trade near the end of 1868, rumor had it the sisters ended up $93,000 richer. And that was just a taste. Several months later, in the fall of 1869, Jim Fisk tried to corner the gold market. The result? A market crash known as Black Friday. But of course... Woodhull saw this coming, which means Vanderbilt saw this coming. A lot of investors lost their fortunes on Black Friday, but Woodhull and Vanderbilt made a killing. By the end of 1869, Woodhull was up $700,000. In today's money, that's around $15 million. That kind of money, it changes things, I guess. It certainly did for Woodhull, because in early 1870, she did something that no woman had ever done before. I'm not talking about running for president, not quite yet, but another event which would lay the groundwork by making Woodhull a media sensation. Stick around to see how even wilder our story becomes after the break. In a lot of ways, the pandemic was a nightmare. But for people like me, voice actors with home studios, the shutdown was kind of good, at least professionally. Commercial recording studios, meaning the non-home studios, were closed. At the same time, there was this huge demand for all kinds of entertainment, anything to distract people through the shutdown. Suddenly, I started getting so many offers for audiobook work that when my day job laid me off that summer, I didn't sweat it. I was ready to quit anyway. This was the good part of the story I teased you with at the beginning of this episode. Finally, I had a meaningful career, working from home in my little Brooklyn apartment. For the first time in a long time, I was winning, until the day I could barely speak. That day came a year into the pandemic. By now, the world was looking better. The vaccine was out. Things were opening up again. But I was struggling, unable to work, canceling my commitments. I could speak casually but I couldn't speak clearly enough for long enough to record a whole book. My tongue would get all twisted. Working in voiceover is like being a vocal athlete, and recording an audiobook is like running a marathon with your mouth. Now, vocally, the best I could do was walk a few blocks before stumbling. I spent the better part of the next year seeing specialists. No one could tell me what was going on. I gained 30 pounds. I was depressed, and I was pissed. Why was this happening to me? Why now? (sighs) And then, (laughs) as if things weren't bad enough, I lost my little Brooklyn apartment in a fire. The story I told you in episode one. You might be listening to this and thinking, man, that sucks, but at least his voice is better. He must have gotten it fixed, right? Wrong. To this day, the problem persists. What you're hearing now is the result of a lot of editing and taking a lot of breaks. There. My secret's out. And part of me is terrified of just ruined your whole perception of this podcast. Or maybe I'm just afraid of being seen as weak. But then why did I make a whole podcast just to brand myself as a loser? All right, enough therapy. After the fire, jobless, homeless, I left Brooklyn and moved back in with my mother. But my desperation to move back out fueled my denial. So like a man possessed, I set up another studio in her spare bedroom. I was thinking... Maybe I just needed a break. Maybe this past year of not working was enough time to heal. So I tried again. Barely made it through one book. Had to cancel the next one. The symptoms get worse the more I push it. I couldn't deny it anymore. The very act of using my voice was crippling my voice. Poetic, right? I see the same poetry in Victoria Woodhull. This is what drew me to her story. After finding her voice, she, too, would be silenced. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Trust me, there's a lot more to say about Victoria Woodhull. So let's get back into her story. After growing up the daughter of a con man, Woodhull understood that few things in American society spoke louder than money. So in early 1870, she built herself a Wall Street megaphone. Victoria and Tinny, along with Colonel Blood, Opened their own investment brokerage, the firm of Woodhall Claflin and Company, making the sisters the first female stockbrokers in American history. The announcement spread like wildfire. On their opening day, thousands gathered outside the front door to see the lady brokers. To tell us about it, once again, Terry Finneman and Nicole Levellina.
2: Some of the press noted that you know they were very agreeable in their manners. <laughs> Which is such a nineteenth-century thing to say, uh, and talked about you know the huge number of people who were very curious about what was happening uh, and going down there. Men going, how in the world could these women be in this? all-male sphere. How dare they? People were aware of her background in spiritualism. Uh, people were found them to be kind of sketchy and, and weren't really sure what to think, and then really dismissed their prior work in spiritualism as, you know, all humbug. So um, she had very mixed reaction, but people definitely found her to be a curiosity.
0: An image was emerging about Victoria Woodhull in the press. But Woodhull wasn't shy about presenting her own image. Just check out her photographs.
1: You will notice in all of them that Victoria has short hair. There's one that's my favorite picture of her. She's actually wearing a top hat um, along with her dress. And I've seen a version that was colorized that I thought was absolutely beautiful because it brought out you know, her brown hair and that particular artist gave her blue eyes. I don't know for sure if that's historically accurate or not. Some people describe her as more mannish. That was the the term used at the time. I think we would would say that she looked a little more masculine. But I think a lot of that is because of the choices that she made, not necessarily because of her features.
0: Woodhull's choices had won her a measure of freedom, first from Buck and the Claflins, then from her first husband, Canning. With greater independence came a greater exposure to new ideas. And at this time, there were a lot of ideas in the air an emerging labor movement, education reform, prison reform, free love, more on that later. According to biographer Mary Gabriel, it was Colonel Blood who gave Woodhull her first meaningful introduction to many of these reforms. She began soaking up the ideas, and she was immediately drawn to one movement in particular,
2: the women's rights movement. Many people are familiar with 1848 and the Seneca Falls Convention, uh, when a number of prominent women and some men came together uh, to declare that women should have more rights in this country. Of course, not long after that, um, the Civil War came and the country was occupied with that.
0: During the Civil War, women's rights activists suspended their national conventions and, to varying degrees, focused on the abolition of slavery. They would resume their conventions in 1866, after the war. But by 1869, the movement would split into competing factions. When Woodhull began checking out the movement, she saw too much arguing and not enough action. She said as much in a column for the New York Herald just a few months after she and her sister became stockbrokers, writing, While others prayed for the good time coming, I worked for it. While others argued the equality of women with man, I proved it by successfully engaging in business. I therefore claimed the right to speak for the enfranchised women of this country. I now announce myself as candidate for the presidency. You heard that right. In her column, published on April 2, 1870, Victoria Woodhull added a new megaphone to her arsenal a presidential campaign.
1: Victoria decided to run for president to try to bring the issue of women's suffrage into the national public spotlight because at the time, there really wasn't
2: a lot of interest in it outside of suffrage circles. And so she wants to take this increasing power that she's gotten and, as, as she noted, not just talk, but actually action. Let's actually have change when you have this presidential platform it gives you more attention, and it draws more attention to your cause.
0: What did that attention look like? Like, what was the reaction to her announcing a run for president?
2: There were some newspapers that actually did give her credit.
0: Like in that New York Herald article I quoted earlier. But for the most part, while people certainly noticed, nobody took her seriously.
2: The press at this time is predominantly white men, of course, with a very patriarchal perspective. And so it's not overly surprising that she would be mocked and ridiculed in the press.
0: Since this was only 1870, and the election was two years away in 1872, the full extent of her vilification in the press was yet to come. But for now, Woodhull was refusing to be a mere background singer in the women's movement by opening her own brokerage, then announcing a run for president, all in the span of a few months, her voice was punching through the noise. To the surprise of the movement's leaders, Woodhull surprised them again a few months later when she made history again.
1: Yeah, Victoria testified before the House Judiciary Committee of Congress in 1871.
0: January 1871. January 11, 1871, at 10 a.m., to be precise. The date and time is significant because this was the same morning as the opening session of the annual NWSA convention. That's the National Women's Suffrage Association. The NWSA was the so-called radical wing of the movement, and its leaders, like Susan B. Anthony, Isabella Beecher Hooker, and others, were in Washington, D.C. to attend this convention. But when they saw the newspaper announcement about Woodhull planning to testify to Congress on the topic of women's suffrage, they postponed their opening session to see her testimony, partly out of solidarity, partly out of curiosity. You mean this Victoria Woodhall petitioned Congress? And then they invited her to speak? How? Benjamin Butler is how. That would be Congressman Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts, a new planet who had fallen into Woodhull's orbit since her presidential announcement. Butler was strongly in support of women's suffrage and other reforms, and he had the connections to get Woodhull in front of the House Judiciary Committee of Congress to present her argument for women's suffrage in January 1871, likely the first woman to ever address that committee. So far, It was the biggest speech of her life.
1: Most biographies say she was scared to death, which, you know, I would be as well (laughs) if I was speaking before Congress, much less in a time that, you know, didn't view me as an equal citizen, much less anything else.
0: It wasn't just the congressmen that made Woodhull nervous. I mean, half of the committee didn't even bother to show up. She was also nervous about Isabella Beecher Hooker, one of the suffragist leaders who had come to hear her speak and who was skeptical about Woodhull and her reputation. But another congressman standing nearby reassured Woodhull and told her something which, I have to say, will be crucial later in our story. This random congressman told Woodhull that Isabella Beecher Hooker shouldn't be one to judge because her brother, a well-known minister named Henry Ward Beecher, had affairs with several of his female parishioners. Let's just put a pin in that. For now, by her own admission... Hearing this rumor helped relax Woodhull before her testimony. When she finally entered the committee room...
1: John Bingham, who was the head of the committee, flat out said to Victoria, you know, before you start speaking, keep one thing in mind, you are not a citizen. And she said, well, then what am I? And He said, you are a woman.
0: So encouraged, Woodhull began to speak. This is how biographer Barbara Goldsmith described the scene. Quote, She began in an almost inaudible whisper, with long pauses between words. Then she stopped. Her lips moved silently as if in prayer. Suddenly a change came over Victoria, as she began reading in a low voice that gained authority with every phrase. As the nondescript committee room full of congressmen, the ones who cared enough to come, and suffragists and members of the press all bore witness— Victoria Woodhull found her voice. Three things happened as a result of Woodhull's testimony. A couple days later, the Judiciary Committee responded, saying, thanks, but no thanks. Her proposal was tabled. The second thing that happened? Woodhull's status as a leader in the women's movement was no longer in dispute. Susan B. Anthony stated as much in her admiring speech, which concluded that year's NWSA convention, saying... To Victoria C. Woodhull, we owe the advancement of our cause. The third thing that happened, well, in the press and on the lecture circuit, Victoria Woodhull became a rock star.
2: People knew who she was. She received nationwide press coverage. And so she has this momentum from being involved with these prominent suffragists from her testimony before Congress. She has started her own newspaper because she feels like the mainstream press is not giving a fair shake to her or to the women's rights issues. And so she is becoming a phenomenon.
0: The newspaper she had founded, along with her sister and husband, was called Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. The paper would put in writing what would essentially become the substance of Woodhull's campaign platform, attacking corporate corruption, promoting reform in the nation's education and political systems, and one idea so provocative, so challenging to the sensibilities of the day, that it overshadowed all others. This idea was known as free love.
1: She felt like when two people fell in love, they were married. When two people fell out of love... They were no longer married. The government should not be involved
2: and religion should not be involved in marriage whatsoever. And this, of course, boils down to her own situation where she was trapped in a marriage um, that she didn't want to be in and really had no rights um, and was ostracized for trying to think that she should be able to get out of it, right? She flat out said, I can take any partner that I choose at any time and... It's perfectly fine. Yeah, love whoever you want, whenever you want, and however long you want. So you can imagine what people thought about this in 1872.
0: One of the nicknames the press called her will give you an idea. Mrs. Satan. Free love was not a new concept. The women's rights movement had been calling for changes in laws around marriage and divorce for a while. And the phrase itself was coined by the writer Henry David Thoreau a few decades earlier but woodhall arguably became its most well-known promoter at the time she also pointed out the hypocrisy that while society claimed to be scandalized by the idea free love was already widely practiced and quietly accepted as long as you were a man wall street moguls like Cornelius Vanderbilt or Jim Fisk could parade around their mistresses a famous preacher like Henry Ward Beecher could sleep with his parishioners according to the rumor woodhall heard back in congress But the notion that a woman could sleep around or even just have a series of different, committed, monogamous relationships went against everything mainstream society deemed good and proper, threatening to tear down the social order. So in the spring of 1871, months after her January appearance in Congress, as Woodhull's voice grew louder, so did the effort to silence her. I could talk at length about all the criticism flung at Victoria Woodhull, But my voice can only take so much. For now, it's crucial to understand that when it came to fighting back against her critics, Woodhull wasn't shy.
2: And especially for a woman of her time, right? When women are basically supposed to be seen and not heard. And for her to not only be out there, but when she's getting attacked, you know, rather than wilt and like go back and be embarrassed and she's out there. (laughs)
1: I mean, the
2: amount of bravery and guts that that took, it's just, it's hard to fathom.
0: Amid all the hate, there was one criticism of Woodhull's run for president, which was valid and undeniable. But ironically, almost no one pointed it out. Technically, she wasn't qualified. As president, she would be 34 years old. According to the Constitution, you have to be at least... 35.
1: Yeah, Victoria technically was too young to run for president. But it's my understanding that people were so shocked by the very idea that a woman would run for president that nobody bothered to even really say, hey, by the way, you're not qualified. It was just it was this. How dare this upstart woman do this? You know, if she would have had any real chance at winning, I think it would have been brought up.
0: The next several months, 1871 into 1872, were marked by this escalating warfare between Woodhull and her critics. The haters animated her fury, put the fire in her voice. Publicly, she was defiant, more extreme in her calls for social revolution. Privately, she began to channel the example set by her parents, Anna and Buck.
1: Including blackmailing members of the suffrage movement in order to get what she wanted. So... You know, that's Victoria was her parents' child.
0: Wait, you said blackmail? What was was the blackmail?
1: She basically mocked up an edition of her newspaper that spilled all of the secrets of these women in the suffrage movement and said, hey, if you don't back my presidential campaign, I'm going to release this. Between the trouble she was causing in general and that, she pretty much shot herself in the foot when it came to having the backing that she wanted
0: even the backing of Susan B. Anthony. Because when she found out about the blackmail, she was pissed. The final straw came in May 1872 at the annual New York Convention of the NWSA. Anthony was presiding, but on the second night... Woodhull stepped forward and stole the show.
1: Victoria basically used her speech to try to convince the women's suffrage conventioneers to come to her own convention for the Equal Rights Party.
0: The Equal Rights Party was a new political party formed to support Woodhull's campaign. When she suggested the NWSA convention should end, and everyone instead go to her Equal Rights Party convention the next day, and... When this announcement was met with cheers and applause.
1: That made Susan B. Anthony mad. They had already had a falling out at that point. Now all of a sudden, Victoria comes and speaks and tries to take her audience away for her own purposes. And Susan was, was just like, no. She basically had all of the gas lights doused. So imagine just taking, like nowadays, taking the breaker switch and turning off all of the lights in the room. That's what Susan B. Anthony did to finally make Victoria
2: stop talking. You know, Susan at the beginning saw the merit that Victoria brought to the cause. But as she and Susan's eyes um, began to get way too extreme, she felt like she was doing more to hurt the cause and to make the whole cause into a joke and to push back on the progress that they had made. Uh, and so then you see a major falling out.
0: I feel like I had an idea of how the story was going to go. And now with the blackmail and the fight with Susan B. Anthony, it's like the narrative is getting weirder. Like, what's going on?
1: (laughs) I think Victoria started to believe her own press um, and believe that she really could, you know, win this. And then I think it became a bit of an ego thing. That, okay, this is the destiny that my family has been telling me that I've had my entire life. You know, if nobody else is going to do this, I will.
0: At this point, the Woodhull campaign was peaking. But personally, her life was falling apart. Shortly before her convention, her first husband, Canning, died. He had been living with Woodhull at the time, which was another scandal. People assumed a salacious three-way arrangement with Woodhull and her new husband. Woodhull insisted she was merely taking care of the father of her children, who was ill. She had also lost her home, an elegant mansion she had been renting in Manhattan, after the owner threatened to evict her. Apparently, they didn't want someone of her reputation living there. Also, her brokerage and her newspaper were losing money. Reflecting back on this time in her life, she wrote that she was, quote, tired, sick, and discouraged as to my own future. But Woodhull kept fighting back, and this time, The counterattack was nuclear.
1: Their newspaper had shut down because they were having financial difficulties, but they decided they wanted to come back with one more big issue that became known as the scandal issue.
0: This was in late October of 1872, about a week before the election. In this scandal issue, they went public with some dirt they had on a few very prominent people. One of those prominent people was, no surprise, Isabella Beecher Hooker's famous preacher brother, Henry Ward Beecher.
1: He was a very beloved preacher um, at the time and very, very, very popular. It was very much a last-ditch effort um, on her part. She had already irritated the spiritualist community. She had irritated the women's suffrage group and she just basically said, you know what? I'm just going to lay everything out there. It was a little bit of revenge. It was a little bit of... She has nothing left to lose. I think they knew that it was going to cause trouble, but I don't think anybody foresaw just how much trouble.
0: Much trouble came because this scandal issue, like all newspapers, was circulated by mail, which got the attention of a man named Anthony Comstock, a moralizing anti-obscenity activist who also happened to be a postal inspector. When Comstock learned about this scandalous issue of the newspaper, he convinced a federal court to arrest Woodhull, her sister, and Colonel Blood for violating an obscure law against sending obscene material through the postal system. On November 2nd, a Saturday, three days before the election, Deputy Marshals went to Woodhull's brokerage office and took her and her sister, Tenny into custody. They were finally released a month later after paying $16,000 bail each. Which means that on Election Day, November 5th, Victoria Woodhull was sitting in a jail cell. Thus ended her history-making campaign. I guess we have the patriarchy to thank for this anticlimax, among many other things. Well, now we come full circle to the beginning of our episode, Woodhull dressing up as a Quaker woman, sneaking past the cops at the Cooper Institute, delivering a speech, talking about her imprisonment and other social issues then surrendering herself to arrest. This happened on January 9th, two months after the November arrest. She was arrested this time because the paper sent more copies of the scandal issued through the mail after receiving a request from a James Beardsley. Who was James Beardsley? Anthony Comstock, using a fake name. This time, Victoria and Tinney made bail the next day, but this pattern would continue over the next year. Repeated arrests, more bail, eventually some kind of trial. In the end, none of the charges would stick. To some, Woodhull became a martyr, the victim of a government desperate to crack down on free speech and freedom of the press. For a couple more years, she maintained a healthy following, and while the newspaper and the brokerage continued to bleed money, Woodhull was able to survive on the money she received on the lecture circuit. But she was no longer invited to speak. At a women's convention.
2: Yeah, um, you know, Susan B. Anthony um, and some of those major suffragists are a key reason why Victoria Woodhull is forgotten today. Um, because when they were writing their history of the suffrage movement, they wrote her out. If you
1: read the history of the women's suffrage movement, it's like a five or six volume series that was written by Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and a couple of other women. Victoria is literally a footnote they were like,
2: we don't even want to deal with her.
0: And so Victoria Woodhull was officially silenced.
2: And it's really a shame because, you know, we learn uh, over and over in K-12 history about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, but yet we don't learn about powerful women. Uh, I mean, certainly they get a few sentences about Susan B. Anthony, um, but we don't learn about these other powerful women who had a significant impact.
0: In the movie of her life, the story would likely end here. The tragic arc of a pioneering woman who fought the good fight of a person way ahead of their time. But reality is messier than fiction. Because in real life, Woodhull goes on to live a whole other chapter. She divorced Colonel Blood, moved to England, married a wealthy banker there. She got new hobbies, automobiles, eugenics. She lived out the rest of her days overseas until she died at the age of 88. Before she died, Woodhull made a few trips back to America, and she actually ran for president two more times, in 1884 and 1892, but she only got a fraction of the support she had in 1872. It might have been because by this point, Woodhull had publicly repudiated the one issue that made her so notorious—free love. In January 1881, she published a single-issue newspaper called Woodhall and Claflin's Journal. In this publication, she addresses her earlier newspaper's support of free love, writing, Articles favoring free love appeared without my knowledge or sanction. And also writing, I now openly vow that during no part of my life did I favor free love even tacitly. What the hell? Biographer Mary Gabriel describes the overall tone of this article as, quote, frantic and rambling. She suggests this was an effort to win the approval of her new husband's skeptical family. They were still only engaged at this point. Overall, in her last years in New York and subsequent time in England, Woodhull's speeches and writings became less about free love, more about purity. Less about spiritualism, more about Catholicism. It seemed like she disowned the most notorious parts of her story, the parts her critics obsessed about. Why? I've never been criticized by the media or the man. I don't know what that's like, but I do know what it's like to be seduced by my own relentless self-criticism, the mantra within saying I didn't deserve happiness, success. You hear that criticism enough, you start to believe it. I won't presume to say this is what happened to Victoria Woodhull. But I wonder, after being thrown in jail, erased from the history of the women's movement, did Woodhull decide to finish the job? Silence her own destiny? Before this podcast, I would have thought such a thing wasn't possible. But now, I see that for one fleeting moment, when life is going well, I dared to think of myself as a winner. And only a few years later, here I am proclaiming myself a champion of losers. How poetic. Special thanks to Professor Terry Fenneman, author of Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. Special thanks as well to author Nicole Levellino, the author of Madame Presidentes. Check out both books to learn a lot more about Victoria Woodhull. I also drew heavily from two biographies Other Powers The Age of Suffrage, Spiritualism and The Scandalous Victoria Woodhull by Barbara Goldsmith and Notorious Victoria by Mary Gabriel As you can imagine there's a lot more detail to her story And special thanks to you for listening to this episode which is the last episode of Winning and Losing For now Keep an eye on this feed for future episodes and seasons down the line. If you haven't yet heard the prior four episodes of this season, check them out. Winning and Losing was produced by me, David Zadzen, with dramaturgy by Dr. Shane Bro, additional assistance by Brian Waddell, and the amazing support and feedback of many others. Music by Artlist. When I set out to make this podcast, I wanted to understand a side of American history I didn't really learn in school. And I wanted to make some meaning out of the setbacks I've experienced in my own life. I hope, in listening to these episodes, you've been able to come away with a similar understanding. While my therapist might disapprove of me labeling myself a loser, I think we can all find comfort in this. Everyone's a loser. At times, everyone fails. This doesn't make us weak. It makes us human. Until next time. This is David Sazen encouraging you to hug the biggest loser in your life, especially if it's you.